Welcome to another edition of the Dogger Pass Podcast. This for UFC Vegas 82. This episode of the Dogger Pass Podcast and all episodes of the Dogger Pass Podcast are brought to you by PrizePix. Use promo code DOP when making a new account to get a match up to $100 on your first deposit. Producer Megan on the stairs. Cody Saftik on the line. I got killed last week, Cody. I mean, Pavlovich is probably a little bit too heavy in, in a heavy heavyweight fight. I had CLV for whatever that's worth when he's unconscious on the ground. Um, no, I got I got murdered. It was murder ball last week, but it had been a pretty good run up until that card. But yeah, I just got I had Borshev. I think Borshev was the right side in that fight. I mean, he won most moments of that fight outside of getting dropped and you know deservedly losing a ten eight round in round two. But uh, it was nice to see him at least fight back and get my money back on that one. But it was a rough. It was a rough card last week. Yeah, dude, I, I I hear you. Parlays were looking good. They were looking intact. We were 8-0-1 because Borshev was a draw, so we were undefeated through nine fights in the prelims, and then the main card was just an absolute bloodbath. So Pat Sabatini, why did I put him up so high? I thought he was going to grapple. Leading up to it, I think he's going to grapple. Played in my head a million times, he's going to grapple. And then like literally right before he goes and he makes his walkout, they're doing their little interview stuff and he's like you've seen me wrestle in past fights you've seen me show my world-class grappling now you're gonna see something different i was like i knew right then and there don't stand which is what he was applying and he did and got knocked out so like i i can't go in there and hold their hands and make them do the damn thing but i put him on the top line so that's up to me that he got smoked and then in terms of main card stuff i also had pavlich and then mackenzie Dern got smoked by andrage so started off eight oh and one on the prelims but ended the night two and three on the main card so at least Pereira won or else you know, people would be real steamed at me, but all you can do is move forward. We got 14 fights, presumably, on this upcoming UFC. There's a full Bellator card, which is littered with fights. And then uh, I got a low-key plus-money banger on the Octagon MMA card in Germany we can talk about at the end of the card. So all I'm saying is there's going to be plenty of betting opportunities to write the ship. We just got to make sure we get the right combination. Let's write the ship right now. Main event, we've got Brennan Allen taking on Paul the Bear Jew Craig. Brennan Allen, a minus 450 favorite. Craig can be had for plus 350. I mean, if you were going to bet Paul Craig, it seems pretty suburb bust. The best price on the market that I see is plus 650. Uh, Brennan Allen, obviously, is going to have significant advantages on the feet. His grappling is nothing to sneeze at either. He's a very, very well-rounded fighter coming into his own. I'm picking him to win. I think he should absolutely flatline uh, Craig, Craig doesn't have great wrestling. The only way I really see him getting to the gr- like getting to the ground is like pulling guard, or Brennan Allen decides to like hang out in his guard. And I don't know. Brennan Allen has so many other tools. I feel like he would be playing with his food if he ever let that happen. Four fifty is kind of wild. I'm not gonna fault anybody for taking like a Craig by sub prop because literally I think you bounce that plus three fifty. Up to sit plus 650 is the best on market right now if you're actually going to do that. Um, but outside of a sub, like what's, what's Craig going to do? Like He doesn't really throw with too much power. So like a knockout seems incredibly unlikely. Um, he tends to gas out if this is a five-round fight. Makes it even harder on him. Like I don't know. I feel like Brendan Allen is coming into his own. The line is wide, but he should absolutely smash Paul Craig. What's your take here? 
Yeah, listen, I'm going to agree, but how many times have we sat here, most of the time, me sitting here, and talk about how Paul Craig's probably going to get smashed, he can't really take a punch, durability is not all that good, his striking's almost non-existent, his cardio is very, very soft, and yet, what's he going to do, throw up a, a random triangle choke, some random submission, and boom, he hits it, he hits it all the time. So, like, yeah, no, I'm fading him, as I always fade him, but <clears throat> Paul Craig's got that magic touch, makes magic happen, and... That would be the only thing that's the slightest bit concerning to me because honestly, when I look at Paul Craig, if he has nothing other than a sneaky opportunistic submission game is that he's got fairly high ring IQ. Like he's good at playing against his opponent's mm -hmm. weaknesses. And for the most part, the guys that they've matched him up with have all had one big glaring weakness, even his big wins. You know, he's got wins over Jamal Hill, a future UFC champion. That's huge. Hill was a blue belt at the time. He didn't really have that grappling. So Falls on top of him, boom, he's going to grab something. Nikita Krylov. Krylov has a bit of a weak gas tank, but also, you know, maybe some weak grappling, submission defense. So he lets him tire out, beating the crap out. And Krylov smoking him for the first three minutes of that round, four minutes of that round. And then, you know, he, he catches him. It's what he does. Volkan Uzmir doesn't have the grappling. Johnny Walker doesn't have the grappling. Andre Muniz's last time out. This one's interesting. Andre Muniz most certainly does have the grappling. And I think the breakdown in that fight going in was, wow, how is he going to pull off one of these crazy Hail Mary triangles over a guy you know, that's a third-degree Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. In that fight, it's like Muniz has a suspect gas tank, so he fought well. He just tired him out. Once he tired him out, he all of a sudden was the better striker, and once he started beating him up, he was able to TKO him. So props to how many quality victories he has. Props that he's been able to stay relevant in this division for as long as he has, but eventually you're going to run into these guys that are well-rounded, and that's what I see in Brendan Allen. He's young. He's out of one of the top gyms. Uh, in the world for that matter and he's on a solid win streak right now he can wrestle he can grapple he can strike he fought Andre Muniz he choked him out and the submissions are definitely there the grappling is definitely there the one uh, fight maybe it's like oh takedown defense is going to be an issue maybe the Jacob Malkoon fight but that fight he outlands him he works the entire time and Malkoon is an absolute dog with the takedowns mm -hmm. right that's something I am 100% not expecting out of Paul Craig I nor do I think he could replicate plus this is a five-round fight and again, I think he's got a bit of a suspect gas tank. So if he goes in with a grappling heavy approach, which is shoot the takedowns constantly, uh, he's going to tire himself out. If he goes in with an approach of come forward and try to brawl with Brandon Allen, he's going to get slapped. If he tries to pull a guard, it could work on a lot of guys. But again, Brandon Allen's got nasty top control, nasty grappling, trains in a gym with tons of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu world champions and can hang with them. Fought Andre Muniz and subbed him. Like, I, I don't know that pulling guards necessarily the best path. So if Paul Craig wins, like you said, you know, one of those Hail Mary submissions. Plus 650. If he loses, yeah, if he loses, Magic Beans TKO'd, plus 650 ticket. Like, I, I, I'm not going <laughs> to fault anybody for taking that. Because I feel like his submission prop is probably his money line. His money line is plus 350. You get plus 650 for likely, the, like, I really struggled to see him win a decision here. I mean, he got a TKO win in his last fight. And Brandon Allen's last couple losses, again, it's when he gets TKO'd. But Sean Strickland and action man Chris Curtis, okay, I'm going to give you a pass there. If you get TKO'd by Paul Craig, you've got some serious problems on your hands. I don't think he's at that level by no stretch. So it's MMA. Anything can happen. Something wild could land in exchange. Rock him. Make it work for yourself. But I think logic would dictate if you're going to take Craig, you would take that Craig by submission. But flip side to that with Brandon Allen, I'm thinking the TKO. Again, if he keeps the fight standing and he's able to just strike with Paul Craig, he's going to catch him and knock him out. If Paul Craig ends up pulling guard or the scramble leads to Brandon Allen being on top, I still think he probably TKOs him. Like, again, go back to the Krylov fight. He has Paul Craig out in guard, right? Punching away. And one of the punches wake him back up. The ref doesn't stop it. And then Paul Craig 
pull some crazy magic, which he's known to do. But do I see it happening here? No. So I'm going Brandon Allen. Brandon Allen, probably a top ticket guy because one, I legitimately like him. Two, it is the main event. I could take the head out if I needed to, but I probably wouldn't because it's Paul Craig. And uh, again, historically, it's cost me money, but I feel good about this matchup. We'll see what could possibly go wrong, Paul. Yeah, Paul Craig finds a way. Paul Craig finds, finds a, way. a way. Finds a way. Yeah, Let's don't take that away from. Him. We're not trying to de- besmirch him. I'm impressed by like how mm. he's definitely grown a lot over the course of his career. He's like added some skills, and and yeah, I mean he's pulled the rabbit out of the hat so many times that it's like it's not a fluke at this point. It's like he's very opportunistic and he's he's capitalized in a lot of s- different spots. But sometimes it looks so 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 very ugly. You know, um, you know, it's crazy, and then we can move on. But he's got to win over Jamal Hill, right? A submission win over Jamal Hill, a future champion. And he's got to win over Magomed Ankalaev, right? Yep, a future UFC insane. champion. Both those both those guys, light heavyweight champions. And he's at middleweight now. So he looked good against Muniz on the scale. He true. looked really good against Muniz on the scale and performed well. So I'm expecting a good version of him. I wouldn't write him off. I just think the 27-year-old kid who's again just like doing the right things and 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 looking good and seemingly hasn't beaten every element but with Paul Craig yeah you can never write the guy off he's got that uh, he's got the dog in him yep all right we got Michael Morales taking on Jake the Celtic kid Matthews Morales is a minus 310 favorite Matthews can be had for plus 260 who you got here bud yeah, so this one feels winnable for Jake Matthews until you really look at it. And it's like, well, where is he going to get the fight done? So, of course, you and I know Jake Matthews for his grappling. He was a young kid with some really nice grappling. Father's a kickboxing champion over in Australia, but he himself is very much a grappler. Doesn't have the wrestling to back it up. Doesn't have the striking to really you know, get his opponent's respect and then and then, and then then mix it up and get it to the ground. But when he takes over, got, fights guys that cannot hold down a job in the UFC... He can beat them when he takes on any like modicum of top 10, top 15 guy. He generally struggles. Again, when you look at his wins, Paul, Deshaun Johnson, Wagner Rocca, Akbar Theriola, Johnny Case, Boyan Velikovic. He's actually low-key, not bad, but still no, none of these guys ever had success in the UFC. Jing Liang, uh, Jing Liang Lee would probably be his best guy. He's had a little bit, right? Shinzo Anzai cut very quick. Rostam Makam cut very quick. Emil Meek cut very quick. Diego Sanchez was at the way tail end of his career. Andre Fialo cut off a one and three run. Darius Flowers his last time. Like that's the level that he can be. But you've seen this guy routinely time and time again step up and quietly he's not that young kid anymore. Quietly now he's 30 years old. He just never really turned the corner. He never really put it all together for my liking. He's been in the UFC for a decade. He just really hasn't put it all together. Now, out of all those performances, right, his career high for significant strikes landed 72. And it's against a shell of a shell of a body of Diego Sanchez. Outside of that, he's kind of low output on the striking. The wrestling, it's non-existent. Last time out against Darius Flowers, no takedowns. Against Matt Semmelsberger, one. None against Fialo. None against Sean Brady, who's obviously much better grappler and smoked him. One against Diego Sanchez. And then you'd have to go back to the Meek fight almost four years ago before he actually put consecutive takedowns together. I don't think the wrestling is going to be in play here against a guy like Michael Morales, who we know his wrestling credentials. We know he's very physically strong. He's got 92% takedown defense in the UFC. And the guys that have managed to get him down, like Adam Fugit got him down for a couple of minutes, and that was it. Trevin Giles got him down for a minute. That was it. The, the guy seems fairly competent there. So now Matthews needs to outstrike him. And there's two issues with that. One, he's low volume. We already talked about it. So Morales can easily eclipse 80, 90, 100 significant strikes, especially if you're not trying to take him down and you want to stand with him. 
So he's probably going to get out of volume. Second of all is that Matthews doesn't seem to be able to wear a punch very good. Like just two fights back, right before his last win over Flowers, the fight with Matthew Selmsberger, he gets knocked down three times. Like every time he starts to build any type of momentum, Selmsberger, not a bad power puncher, but certainly not like the biggest puncher in the division. Like every time he lands, Matthews is hurt and he ends up losing to Matthew Semmelsberger, who also took him down three times. So as far as I'm concerned with Michael Morales, he'll put up the volume. He'll put up the power. He could take down Matthews if he wants. He could stuff the takedowns and just sprawl and brawl him if he wants. Uh, he's still only 24 years old. Like this kid's going to be getting better every time out. And, and whereas Matthews, again, is another one of these guys that's not a complete write-off. He's, he's had no success when he steps up to decent guys and Morales is way on his way. Like he's not fighting as much as I'd like to. I hear he's been battling a few injuries here and there, but I think he's had like seven months off since his last fight. He's healthy for this one. He's had a good camp. He comes in there. I think, yeah, again, he's either going to clip Matthews with something standing or he's just going to resort to landing the bigger shots, more of them, and then mixing in a few takedowns and winning in decision. But in both scenarios, Morales should be the victor. So that, that is the pick. Yeah. Morales has kind of shown us in a couple different ways where you can get, he can get the knockout, but he can also win a, a closely contested, or not relatively closely contested decision like he did last time out against Max Griffin. I think the biggest key here is that he's got a six-inch reach advantage, 79 inches for Michael Morales versus uh, Jake Matthews with 73 inches. I think Morales uses every little bit of that reach, keeps him at bay. If he does get taken down, yeah, I think he's got enough in his in his game to get back up. I believe his dad or his, someone in his family's from like a judo background, so it's like he was training in that, uh, you know, as a kid growing up. I think he's fully confident on the ground there. The, the line seems a little bit wide for me, but Morales is kind of a, a young 24-year-old prospect in this division that I expect to see improvements every single time he steps in there. Um, and I feel like we are seeing those improvements. So, yeah, I'm with you. Michael Morales, uh, minus 310 for me as well. Moving on down, we got Chase Hooper taking on Jordan Levitt. Uh, Hooper, a minus 190 favor. Levitt can be had for plus 165. See a lot of people taking Jordan Levitt here. Um, I don't know if I can really support that, to be perfectly honest. Um... I know Chase Hooper, you know, got taken down four times last time out against uh, against what was it, Fiore or whatever. Um, yeah. But he put up 150 significant strikes. Jordan Levitt's uh, output at the best of time, unless he's getting takedowns and just holding top position over the course of three rounds. It's like when this fight's at range, like Chase is going to be pulling up volume on him and we really outside of what the one fight where like Jordan Levitt put up half decent numbers against Trey Ogden I believe it was like 69 significant strikes something like that yeah we're not even in the same stratosphere as what Hooper who I thought frankly I thought that Fiore fight kind of showed that's like okay things may actually all be coming together for Chase here I think Chase wins on volume Chase could potentially, you know, sub them, have the better grappling if they get to the mat. He's got a lot of outs here. So, like, minus 190 doesn't seem too crazy for me. And we know he's got, like, insane durability. So, Levitt has, I guess, one pop or one shot popped a few guys. They've been incredibly low level. But Chase is not going to go down that easy, I wouldn't say. So, I don't know. I think Chase is justifiable at this number. What about you? 
Yeah, I'm totally going to agree. So Chase Hooper is one of these guys that kind of became the laughing stock of the community, but I, I always liked him, right? And I always gave him the benefit of the doubt that he's super young, man. He was the youngest guy signed to the roster when they had signed him back in the day off the contender series. They gave him a developmental deal because they knew he shouldn't be fighting in the UFC, but they tried to bring him along. And in bringing him along, you see him get exposed and you see this young kid struggle on the world stage, taking on not the greatest level of guys, but solid competition the best guys on their respective regional scenes who make it to the ufc and now he's got to go out there and fight them so he loses a few and i think people kind of throw him in the category of a page van zandt or a you know a sage Northcutt or some young prospect that wasn't really ever gonna materialize but in his case it's like he's got legitimate jujitsu it's just he doesn't seem all that physically strong he's a young nerdy michael sarah looking kid no striking to back it up but solid cardio solid jujitsu and again the more he gets experience i think the more he's going to improve the thing though is that he's six foot one and was competing at 145 pounds like how many 45ers are six foot one on the roster yeah yeah not a whole lot so and a young kid I think his frame is just getting to such that it was getting a little bit too big. He doesn't seem like the strongest guy at 45. It's that he's big and the weight cuts are getting tougher. So after he lost to Steve Garcia, who's, you know, doesn't look like a great opponent, but Steve Garcia hits. He hits and he hits hard. Once he lost to Garcia, he took a year off about, not quite a year off, but he moved up to 55. And then I think in that last fight with Nick Fiore, why is he starting to put it all together? Maturity, experience. But I think the move to 55 is going to yield big results. And it's not like these guys at 55 are even all that much bigger. Jordan Levitt is considered long, and he's five foot nine, right? He has a 71-inch reach. He's got three inches less than Chase Hooper, and he's giving up a whole lot of height. So Hooper's still big for lightweight, and I think he's starting to add in the wrestling. You used to be joke gimmicks, you know, him and Ben Askren getting some work in together. And it's not like Ben Askren is an actual training partner of his, but he has started to spend a lot of time on his wrestling and he's got a lot of leverage because of the height. He can lean on guys, he can wear on guys. He gives up takedowns still, but I think he's so naturally confident that in his ability to scramble, his ability to get back on top, his ability to threaten with submissions, that he just leads to work, 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 work. So you go back to three fights back to Felipe Calares fight. Calares is in it early, but he just drowns him. And Fight Metric will tell you that Chase Hooper landed 60 significant strikes in that fight. But he landed like 130 total strikes in that fight. They just deemed 60 of them significant. He drowned him and put him away in the third round. And then the last fight with Nick Fiore, a fight that probably could have gotten stopped, you just saw him continuously build and, and continuously get better. And so I think about this fight with Jordan Levin. It's like neither of them are good strikers. But for my money's worth, I actually do think Chase Hooper is the better striker. None of them are great wrestlers, but Levitt's more of a guard puller. He's not someone, maybe he shoots low on the single leg. Maybe Hooper flops to his back because he wants to engage him in some grappling. But I think Hooper's physically stronger, has better striking, has the wrestling. Grappling is top-notch, getting better. And Levitt's more of a guy you can throw him in there against one-dimensional people who can't catch up to him or that he could exploit in some area. He does a quick little twerk. He's kind of like uh, a Vanessa Demopolis, you know, he's very one dimensional and then uses that one dimension to keep fights close and greasy. And then maybe squeaks them on the scorecards. Right. And then does a stupid little jump in the commentator's arms or in his case, do a little twerk and then take off. But like, there's nothing really that jumps out at his game that screams this is something that I can get behind. Jiu-Jitsu is not world-class. Wrestling is not there. Striking is not there. The volume, as you mentioned, the one fight with Ogden, but it's super low level. And it's almost all low leg kicks from the outside. That's it. Ogden just freezes up and stares at him. And he just low kicks him from the outside and jumps out of range. So 
It's in Las Vegas. Levitt's from Las Vegas, trains at Syndicate, you know, has been there for a long time. Maybe the non-existent crowd is on his side, but like there's not hometown cooking in Vegas. They're going to shoot it as straight as they can. And I think uh, I think Chase Hooper gets the win. Yeah, I mean, we've been at about the Apex 82 times now. There really isn't hashtag home cooking when there's no crowd. Like the, the yeah. vibes of these cards are completely different than, you know, going into, you know, f- if you went into Phoenix, Arizona, and you got Chase Hooper fighting in front of his home crowd, it would be kind of like a different story there, you know? They're going to call it as they see it. And sometimes the judges are just straight up bad, regardless of where on the planet you are. Uh, moving on down, we've got Peyton Talbot taking on Nick Aguirre. Minus 700 for Talbot, the biggest favorite on the card. Aguirre can be had for plus 500. I mean, this Talbot kid is priced like he's the second coming, Cody. Um I watched this fight on Contender Series against uh, Tracy Cortez's brother. He looked good. He looked like he can strike pretty well from range. Can he grapple? Because Aguirre's done some decent stuff over the course of his career, obviously. A lot of, he's got a bunch of wins by submission. And uh, even going to decision against Dan Argueta is like a half-decent look. I know, you know, he lost very, very soundly in that fight, but... I don't know, man. Minus 700, it's like you're paying a big price here on Talbot. Feels like Dogger Pass to me. I know. Sounds crazy. But I'll be looking for like a a Aguirre by submission sprinkle just because I really don't know what to expect from Talbot. You know, UFC debut, UFC jitters, massive, massive number. I can't get there. Uh, It's Dogger Pass for me. What about you? Yeah, I mean, if you compare it to last week's biggest favorite on the card, Matus Rebecki, it's like Rebecki was 15-1 and one before he signed with the UFC. It fought internationally, had wins over Dagir Ishmagulov. Or sorry, yeah, he had a win over uh, Imovov, Dagir Imovov, Nasruddin's brother. He had fought in a lot of legitimate guys, came to the UFC, wins two fights, and he's taking on a short-notice, short-notice missed weight Roosevelt Roberts, and he was minus 650, right? So you, you you knew you were getting a legitimate guy. You knew the odds were stacked in his favor, and he was minus 650. So that felt that felt like, eh, that's as much as I want to pay, but I'm still willing to pay it. Now you're getting minus 1,000 on a kid who's very young, who's making his UFC debut, coming off a decision win on the Contender Series, and it's minus 1,000. So yeah, dude, I'm totally going to agree. And for the record, he's from Las Vegas. He's like born and raised in Vegas. Uh, went to university at the University of, of uh, I think, University of Nevada, Reno. He's like home through, home through. If this is at the T-Mobile or if there was like some existing crowd to get behind him, that, that would help. But like, again, he's just buried in the apex on the main card. And that's cool. But like, what does that really do for you? So yeah, at 10 to 1, you got to think that he's going to go out there and absolutely starch Nick Aguirre, which I, you know, he very may, may well. But at 10 to 1, it's like you'd have to be certain. And I don't think you can be certain of that because... You haven't seen enough. You have seen, most notably, that fight with uh, Junior Cortez on the contender series, as you mentioned. It's Tracy Cortez's brother. There's two state champions in the family. It's a wrestling family. His brother was an MMA fighter as well. He went one for 17 on takedowns, right? So, like, this kid can... He can defend. I think he can move. Peyton Talbot seems like a natural athlete, whereas whereas future gen- or for past generations of MMA fighters, they come from judo backgrounds. They come from karate backgrounds. They come from taekwondo backgrounds. They come from traditional martial arts backgrounds. This kid's coming from a 
MMA background. He can wrestle. He can grapple. He can strike. And whereas a lot of people are in college wrestling rooms, this guy's in a fight room. This guy's surrounded by pro fighters in Las Vegas. So I think he's probably developed very quickly. He's got a lot of legitimate skills. He lands 145 significant strikes in that fight over Cortez. And again, uh, kept him to one of 17 takedown attempts with only like a minute of top control. All good stuff. He's young. He's got the looks. He's got the athleticism. He's got excellent volume. He can stuff some takedowns. How does Nick get this thing done? It's not like it, Nick Aguirre is one of these guys that earned his way to the UFC. He should have been on the contender series. His wins were 0-2, 1-1, 0-2, and 1-1, and 0-0, 2-1. Oh, shit, guy with the winning record. A 4-2, and no way. And then he's in the UFC. Like, off what? Now, he's a legit grappler. I'm pretty sure BJJ Black Belt, you know, some competition success. But, like, not enough to come off a... You beat a two and one guy and a four and two guy on a weak regional scene, and now you're in the UFC. Like too much, too little. So did he survive against Dan Argueta? Sure, but two things: one, he gave up four takedowns, wasn't able to get off his back. BJJ Black Belt wasn't so advanced that he was able to, you know, get up or submit him. Just good enough to keep himself out of harm's way and survive a few rounds. Uh, the other thing is that Dan Argueta seems to have a cardio issue. Like he, he I, I, I tried to overlook it for the last fight, and it cost me a bunch of money. The guy tires. And yet against Nick Aguilar, he didn't really have to do much. He just got the takedowns and lied on top of him. So don't think his wrestling is great. If he gets on top, good. Maybe he catches the kid in a fluke submission. But it's 2023, man. Submissions are hard to come by. This kid's in a room with much better grapplers than you on the daily. This kid, I wouldn't say earned his way to the UFC, but he did. He went on the Contender Series. He fought a guy that already was on the Contender Series. So Cortez already had experience. Had way more pro fights. Uh, it comes from a wrestling family. And again, he looked good against him. So 10 to 1, no. Am I trying to justify 10 to 1? All the justifications I've just made have only got him up to like minus 475, minus 625 maybe in my opinion. Uh, but again, the line's been out for a while. People have steamed it and has gone to 10 to 1. I haven't spoken to a whole lot of people that are looking to take Nick Aguirre. But other than Dogger Pass, hey, there's just so much plus money available. Maybe take the shot, but... I would say you've got, I, I don't know, he's a kid. He could lose in any way. You wouldn't be able to be totally surprised. But once you get to these 10 to 1s, you now have to start worrying about like a Jacob Malkoon situation where he smacks the idiot in the back of the head with an elbow and Cody Brunwich is, oh my God, I can't continue and you get disqualified, right? That's 10 to 1 to me is like, what could go wrong? My guy gets knocked out or submitted. It's like, no, he gets disqualified or something stupid because we've lost a couple of tickets this year due to... Ridiculous circumstances, and I think with MMA, you kind of got to expect the unexpected, but that's all I can really say for this one. I'm not going to pick the underdog, but uh, should Talbot be 10 to 1? I'd like to see him have a few fights in the UFC first. Or cry, or cry. Talbot is not, uh, you know, the last time it really happened like that. It was like Mike Truth Jackson versus what, Con Dean Barry Dean or Barry? whatever. Mm. Remember how he was mm. like silly? That was like minus 1600 or something like that. It was like, I plus, it was like plus 1000. Where, yeah, where you had a foul that, that, that went that way. It's like Peyton Talbot, no, he looks like a legitimate prospect. He looks really good. But he's young and inexperienced, and there's... I don't know. We'll see. We'll see where like the Aguirre submission props open up. Like I see a plus a thousand, but that's like the first book to open up that prop. Um, I probably won't be able to help myself drop a little sprinkle on it. Uh, if it loses, whatever. It's 10 to one prop doesn't cost you all that much. Moving on. I down actually, 
Yeah, sorry. I actually tried to bet uh, Game Red FC last weekend, had a couple plays going, and had Hector Lombard, right? And Hector Lombard, minus 350 favorite, 45-year-old man, didn't really want to pay it, but whatever. It was a greasy Friday night action. And same thing, he takes down this Chris Saro, easy money takedown, easy money pass to basically mount. Saro yeah, uh, just like, yeah, he bellies down. They were mostly all legal shots. One of them was illegal. They're mostly legal shots, and Sarah just taps out on his own accord, and the referee stops it. And then they sit in the ring for like 10 minutes. I don't know why, but at no point does the broadcast mention anything. At no point does Lombard or his corner freak out. At no point does the referee mention anything. They just they just hang in the ring for 10 minutes, and then they declare Sarah the winner by disqualification. Mm-hmm. So all these all these parlays of mine, all these plays. Cook. Welcome to and MMA, about, bro. Right, about a half hour later, they're like, oh, Oh, uh, we talked in the back and they're reversing it to a TKO win for Hector Lombard. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the thing there. Gamebred FC, okay? And George Mazadal owns Gamebred FC. George Mazadal, longtime guy at American Top Team, longtime personal close friend of Hector Lombard. The guy that's paying for Gamebred FC is Dan Lambert, the owner of American Top Team. Very, very wealthy man. He's funding this entire thing. And they're in Mississippi, right? So... They go in the back. By the way, owns American Top Team. Longtime student, longtime boy, Hector Lombard. There was no way they were going to let Hector leave that ring with a disqualification loss. But if, but if this was a legitimate MMA fight, UFC fight, Beltra fight, I'm cooked. I'm disqualified. He protests it and gets it overturned to a no contest two weeks from now, but it does me no good. Me no good. They were able to pull some janky stuff and get me my money, but uh, that's not going to bail you out. And did Hector do anything wrong? No, the referee just perceived, oh, dog, uh, the guy, the guy's bellying down and, and one of your seven strikes got through and grazed him in the back. I, I didn't graze him, I punched him square in the back of the head. <laughs> I don't care. The right call was made in that instance, but I'm saying at 10 to 1, you're, you're betting a 45-year-old 350 Hector Lombard and hoping for the best because something can and surely will go wrong at some point. Yeah, if you bet that and then you see Mark Smith... Is uh, is officiating this fight? You are your butt is officially fully puckered, right? That's just the that's the the nonsense that we we put ourselves through on a week week to week basis. Sometimes you just have you know incompetent judges, incompetent um, referees, crazy inconsistencies in between like fouls and how they're scored. Sometimes you know somebody doesn't really get kicked in the nuts and they turn it into a disqualification sometimes you know guys get taken to the hot who was the guy um was on the abu dhabi card yeah yeah we had a big dog Uh, ticket there that fight was looking very very close he gets kicked boots him in the balls yeah victor henry Henry, right just like in another scenario different ref different situation you could yeah it's a dq It's a DQ. Mm, Just inconsistencies within all of this madness that we break down week to week. But I digress. We move on to the next fight. We got Amanda Rebus taking on Luana Pinheiro. Minus 230 for Amanda Rebus. Pinheiro can be had for plus 200. Who you got? Yeah, I'm thinking Hebus, but this is women's MMA. If you need an underdog, I could see the plus money underdog go on the other side. With Hebus, it's amazing. She's got 88% takedown defense in the UFC, which is rock solid. And yet, she gives up takedowns in quite literally every single fight she's had, dating back to her debut. Whitmire took her down. Uh, sorry, Marcos takes her down. Yeah, my, my mistake. I meant takedown offense, 53%. Yeah, her takedown offense is 53%. Yet, she can get the fight down to the ground. Basically, all of her fights. Uh, 
with Luana Pinero, she seems like a bit of a front runner. She's strong. She's physical. Early first round, she's going to be a bit of a threat. And then I think that there's ways to just make her work slower down. I go back to the Ronda Marcos fight, right? She takes Marcos down five times in the first four minutes. By the way, that's a fight that was ended in DQ. <laughs> yeah. But the worst part about that is that she's gassed and Marcos is turning on the steam. And if you had a plus money Marcos ticket, you would have felt pretty good about it until all of a sudden it's like, oh, there was a short foul. All of a sudden she can't continue. To me, it looked like she didn't really have that that heart of a champion. She no. didn't really have that desire, but she's tiring and then took the easy way out. So I've been thinking about fading her, but they've matched her up with Sam Hughes, who she took down three times. She scored a clean knockdown on, you know, Sam Hughes is not terrible. So a good little win, but someone that wasn't able to just really push her and kind of, kind of bring that out of her again. And then Michelle Watterson, her last time out, the Watterson fight was interesting because you've got an aged Watterson, two fights removed from retirement, small for the division, hasn't had a lot of recent success. And yet Watterson outstruck her 61 to 44 and took her down. And yet close split decision and they give it to Luana. But Watterson could have won that fight. And now what do you have? You have someone that didn't quit against Ronda Marcos, but it looks suspect. And then gets a win over Sam Hughes. And then Greece is a greasy split decision over Michelle Watterson. What if she loses the Marcos fight and she loses the Watterson fight, right? Then you're look, you're not even considering her a contender in the slightest bit. Hebus. 30 years old, not old, not young, American top team, longtime martial artist. She's got everything going for us that she struggles to jump over to that top 10, top five level of competition. But she seems to have the volume. She seems to have the edge in striking. And I think that she's going to pursue the takedowns. Again, 55% takedown offense, you know, accuracy, sorry, but is getting multiple takedowns in basically every single one of her fights. I think if she comes out here, times it, takes down Luana, can kind of grind on her, then she's going to start to tire. And as she tires her, that'll open up some of the striking. So last but not least, Hebus doesn't seem to, I don't know, nobody loves getting hit, but she can be fighting an excellent fight. And then just like one thing goes south. So the Marina Rodriguez fight, great example. She wins the first round. Second round, it's like the first flush punch that lands just crumples her over. And then Macy Barber in her last fight, she wins the first round. And then in the second round, it's like Barber's continuous grind and you know the elbows really soften her up. I don't think Luana Pinero has that same type of offense. So if she doesn't get clipped by the big shot, she should be able to get comfortable in there. And if she gets comfortable in there, I think she'll mix in takedowns, mix in her striking, and get the win. So I'm going to end up going with Hivas. Yeah, pretty much everything you may say makes a lot of sense to me there. Uh, after, yeah, the, the Panero versus Marcos stunt. I was on Panero there. I felt like, a, you know, that was one of the rare situations where where you feel like you got one over on the books because, frankly... You never frankly, the in your favor. <laughs> yeah, if she continued yeah. fighting, like, I, I was happy she pulled Naljo there because, like... It, things were the the tides were most definitely turning. You know, she kind of blew her gas tank too early, and then yeah, a lot of her other performances have really lacked a lot of. You know, this is somebody who I thought could be a decent prospect in the division, but I don't know if like the heart is all completely there for her. Um, my only big concern with with Rebus is uh, she took a lot of damage. That was back in June, like that fight against Macy Barber. Like she was battered you know uh at the end of round two there like macy put it on her it's a lot of damage you know for june well, we had july august september october it's obviously four months i'm sure she has she's had time to to heal and all that but yeah my only little bit of a concern in backing her at a at a price tag of minus 230 is 
Yeah, she's she definitely went into battle and and, and got absolutely crushed in the second round of that fight. But uh, I'll pick Hebus as well to win on volume and just that she has that hashtag dog in her. Uh, moving on down, we got Jonathan Pierce taking on Joe Anderson Brito. Minus 130 for Pierce, plus 110 for Brito. Who you got? Yeah, so so again, I got this thing lined up as 50-50. I got this thing as a dog or a pass. I probably will end up taking Joe Anderson Brito. <laughs> but it's hard to say, oh, I got a dog pick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, he's plus 110. Like, what, what dog pick? This is an even money fight. And then you're just playing it by the slightest of margins. First and foremost, I can see this fight going either way. 100%. Jonathan Pierce is the better wrestler. He's the better grappler. He's got a deep gas tank. If he gets his wrestling going in this fight, he might be able to drown Anderson Brito. Joe Anderson Brito, meanwhile, is a physical specimen, a wild man, hits very, very hard. And he doesn't got terrible cardio. Probably will gas out two rounds into this fight, but he's going to inflict a major amount of damage within those 10 minutes. And I'm not sure St. Pierce can really take it, to be honest with you. So, <clears throat> anyways, I guess starting with Pierce, right? Pierce loses that fight to Joe Lozon. Everyone will remember. Minute and a half knocked out. To me, it's a bit of an outlier that either it's a fluke and he, or he's going to get bopped one of these days. And when you look at the guys he's been fighting, Kai Kamaka, not really all that good. He loses in Bellator now. Omar Morales went on a terrible run and ended up uh, getting cut from the UFC. Christian Rodriguez, he's dope. Christian Rodriguez is 21 years old and took that fight. He took the fight on short notice. He lost the first two rounds, and then he damn near bodied JSP in the third. So it was another example of, like, his durability is not that good. His cardio is pretty solid, but he pushes an absolute hectic pace that he's not, you know, he's not bulletproof from gassing out. It's just he continuously works, 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 and as he works, 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 he gets tired. You're supposed to be tired, too. But if you're not tired and you're there to hit him, he's there to get hit. So... A little bit worrisome, that fight. Then his last fight with Darren Elkins. Elkins isn't exactly a striker. Elkins isn't exactly a guy with a whole lot of power. And yet, Elkins slapped him silly with that right hand and kind of hurt him a few times with it. So, I think that for all of his offensive gifts and his ability to grind, it's like he's no defensive gem. He's there to get hit. And Juanis Brito just... He packs one hell of a punch. Now, again, he's been fighting the lower level of competition. Ah, Weston Wilson knocks him out in the first round, but he was expected to do it. Oh, Lucas Alexander, who we'll talk about a little bit later. You know, he's expected to beat him up and subs him in the first round. You know, do what he's supposed to do. But but then he fought Andre Feely. Remember that? It was like a 47-second knockout win. Like, most of his wins are by knockout. He picks one hell of a punch. And to counter the argument of he gassed in on the contender series against Diego Lopez, wins the first two rounds, gasses in the third, eye poke momentum shifted against him and it tells the refs he can't see so it goes to the scorecards and Brito wins it but he was tired and then his fight with Bill Aljeo Bill Aljeo put a pace on him and he tired so the blueprints there this guy tires and someone that can take him down probably will take him down St. Pierce probably will that's that's the game plan they both have an excellent path of victory but, but Joannison is still only like 27 years old. So in my mind, I'm thinking he's starting to shore up the cardio. I know he's been finishing guys in the first round, but if he can just stay solid for two rounds, I think he could definitely go up on the scorecard. So last but not least, and I know I'm just talking myself in a circle, and I am going to take Joannison Brito. I'm biting the bullet here. Joannison Brito has a 0% takedown defense. Like Nobody's ever shot a takedown on him other than Bill Algeo, who shot two and got both of them. Bill Algeo, although a wrestler uh, of types, you know, he wrestled a little bit in high school and college a little bit, um, 
It's not all that physically strong. So him going two for two on takedowns and being the only guy is problematic because you got Jonathan Pierce here is going to go down. He's going to shoot multiple takedowns, probably get some, grind on you, tire you out. I just feel at some point they're going to return to their feet and Pierce is going to slip up and Joe Anderson's going to catch him with something. So I've been riding the favorites pretty much most of the card. I agree with most of the favorites. This one's a dogger pass. It's 50-50. And if I can get slight plus money, on Joannis and Brito, then that, that's where I'm going to end up going. So sign me up for that. I mean, even early on in the fight, like going after those, you know, shooting for some takedowns and getting, you know, Brito's so strong that, like, he could grab that neck, get, a, get an early sub. Like, it. I think, like, the later this fight goes, I don't think the submission threat becomes a thing, but it's going to be dangerous. Yeah, anytime Pierce gets close to him, it's going to be dangerous. The guy hits really, really hard, and he has at least a nasty guillotine if you get your neck stuck in the wrong place, particularly early in the fight. So I'm with you. Brito, Brito for me as well. Moving on down, we got Jose Johnson taking on Chad Anheliger. Johnson at minus 170 favorite. Anheliger could be after plus 150. Who you got? Yeah, so uh, with Chad Anhelegger, it's really cool that he made it to the UFC, but unfortunately, I th- I almost think that's where the dream runs ends for him. People will remember him from the Contender Series. Here's a guy that started off his pro career two and six in Canada. He's a Canadian guy, very familiar with him. Two and six on the Canadian regional scene, and decides I'm going to build my way back up, and does. And again, journeyman status, but he goes on a little winning streak, wins at 125 pounds and 135 pounds, you know, regional titles at two weight classes, cool little, cool little gig, beats a Brady Heastead, who was like, I don't know, was like 21, 22 years old at the time, beats him, gets on the contender series, and then upsets Mwin Gafarov, goddamn, four to one underdog, goddamn, Gracie split decision, crazy. Dana White's like, listen, man. I'm going to give you a contract because this is pretty much the end of the ropes for you. You're 35 years old and nine and six in in MMA. So they bring him in. And then, and I think that would have been a cool moment is that like, I built my career back from a two and six start from a bad start. I I won a couple regional scene titles. I got to fight in front of Dana White at the apex on the contender series. I won. I got a, a UFC fight. They give him Jesse Strader. It's the worst guy in the roster. Jesse Strader, most known to be the late, great Aaron Carter's boxing coach. Jesse Strader, zero success at the high levels. And he's a three-to-one favorite over Jesse Strader. And he struggled, man. He mad struggled. He lost the second round. He's getting boxed up. Catches him in the third and ends up winning the fight. Um, And I remember he's on the microphone and he's like, yeah, well, people know me for my cardio and I push a pace. And he's just like, I tore my meniscus and I got a shoulder injury and I'm really banged up right now. And like, that's why I looked off. That was his explanation on the microphone after the fight. And then he takes a little bit of time off and he came back his last time out against Alatong Haley. He just got taken down. He had no, he really had no answer for the takedowns. Uh, he got grinded. He got outstruck. He looked at the tire a little bit. And then low key, this is a 37 year old man with 20 pro fights. He's not your average contender series graduate. Who's got a full future, a full career ahead of him. That's hungry and wants it. Like I think just making it to the UFC Beating Jesse Strader, you know, I think that's enough. Now he's, he's he's on the downswing. His body's banged up. He's injured. His wrestling, it's not all that good. Again, if you look at the Halatang Haile fight, he gives up the four takedowns. Not so good. The Jesse Strader fight, he got taken a bunch, down a bunch, and not good. The Muin Gafarov fight, you'll give him a pass there because Gafarov's a tank of a man, but still, he gets taken down five times. So the wrestling's not quite there. The, the BJJ, yeah, black belt, you know, a guy that could go out there and maybe... 
maybe get a little bit of top control, maybe maybe sweep to top, maybe hold him down for a little bit. And then in terms of the striking, like it's just there's not enough volume there. So how does he win this fight with Jose Johnson? Well, the biggest concern to me is Jose Johnson be rocking. He's six foot with a 71 inch reach, yep. right? And Anna Ledger's five foot six with a 64 inch reach. So it's a six inch reach advantage right off the hop for Jose. He's a big old height advantage for Jose. And as a result, Jose has that advantage over most guys is that he can't wrestle. He's too damn tall to stuff a takedown. But Chad just hasn't shown that propensity to really wrestle and take him down. Instead, he just tries to like box his way into range and Johnson's got good cardio, like enough so that Chad's not just going to be able to take him into deep waters and drown him. His submission defense is like good, but not great, but probably enough that this fight's not going to hit the ground anyways. But if it did, he could stay out of harm's way. And I just think that with that long jab and the better volume, he'll just be able to stay on his back foot and, and, and clip and prod and poke away. Now, people will say, wow, it's the apex and it's a small cage. Jose Johnson's fought in the apex a few times because... Well, he's already fought a couple times, but again, he's fought in the contender series. And I think that fight with Jack Cartwright would be a good indicator of how that this one goes. He gave up five takedowns to Jack Cartwright. I don't expect five to, to Chad and Ledger, but very much so if you do get taken down, work your way back up and then just get those kicks going. Get that jab going. Get that volume going. Stay to the outside. Move the perimeter. Move laterally. Keep this guy working. Chad at his best would come forward the entire time because he's got that dog in him. He's got some cardio. He would try to make it a scrappy fight. But 37-year-old Chad, again, year-long layoff, been nursing a bunch of injuries, motivation, don't know really where it's at. UFC's coming to Canada pretty soon. They opted not to put him on that card. I don't see it going all that well. Now, minus 190, 200 Jose Johnson. Like Johnson usually finds ways to lose. If you look at his record, he's not the most consistent guy going. But he's fought a decent level of competition. You can't take that away from him. And I just feel like this is his fight to win. So it's better value than some of those big, big favorites on the card, which is why I'll probably have a little more exposure to Jose Johnson than I'd like. But I just think the reach, the activity, the volume, most most things going in his in his direction for this one, which make him the pick. Yeah, I think the simplest way to kind of look at it is like both of these guys can't wrestle. Usually her, their opponents are able to exploit that. Maybe one of them has an edge, but it's really hard to know how that's going to play out, like pre-flop, without you know really seeing much success from either side of the coin. Um, but yeah, I think the the reach and the length and the speed and the volume at range for Jose Johnson makes him the justifiable favorite at minus one seventy uh, in this spot. Just well, he's like seventy seventy one inch reach versus sixty four, like little T Rex arms. On Chad Annelegger. Um Getting taken down by Aaron Carter's boxing coach four times. Not a great look. You're going to have, have a bad time. Um, so, yeah, I'm with you. Jose Johnson's the pick. Moving on down, we got Mick Parkin taking on Kyle Machado. Minus 330 for Mick Parkin. Kyle Machado can be half plus 270. Parkin kind of surprised us last time out. Uh, put up 95 significant strikes against Jamal Pogues. Seemed to be making, you know, pretty significant improvements from uh, from fight to fight. I don't think too many people expected much of him when he entered the, the UFC. He's obviously one of Tom Aspinall's main training partners. Uh, Machado was uh, on Contender Series. I ended up backing Machado as like a massive underdog. It was sloppy, it was ugly, and it was kind of more one of those fights that's like the Sklafarski guy just was like an absolute Farsky. Um, 
in the, like he was brutal, absolutely brutal. So like that number didn't really make any any sort of sense. I don't know, man. This is heavyweights be heavyweights. Minus three thirty is a big price to pay, but you got to figure Mick Parkin has. Uh, I guess Aspinall didn't even really have a training camp heading into that fight. So in fairness, maybe maybe he wasn't putting in all of the grind all of the time um, with Aspinall, or Aspinall was in camp, didn't have an official camp but was helping his boy Mick Parkin get ready for this fight. Heavyweights, guys that don't necessarily scream like first-round knockout type of styles, both of them seem to be capable of high volume. I mean, at this price, it seems pretty dogger pass to me. I'll ever so slightly side with Machado. I don't even know if I'm going to get to it from a betting perspective, though. What's your take here? Yeah, again, it's greasy heavyweights and you're looking at a minus 330 price tag. So that, I think that would be the biggest scare away is that you see it time and time again. It's like with heavyweights in general, it's kind of prone for the upset. And then when you got two lower ranked guys who are probably going to go tit for tat in a fight that goes 15 minutes, they're both going to slow down. They're both going to tire. Now you're relying on bad MMA judges to get it right. And you paid 330 on one guy. Yeah, not 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 the best look, but I just think McParkin's better pretty much everywhere. I mean, Kyle Machado... Again, Brazilian-Canadian, but has been in Canada the last 10 years. Has competed almost exclusively in Canada. I'm not a fan. I don't think he's all that good. He's beating up the local Canadian guys, but he competes for BFL, Battlefield Fight League, over in uh, BC. And they just hand-feed him the lowest-level guys possible. And he's been doing this for, like, almost seven years, man. So, of note, this is just since 2021, right? It's two years ago. He fights Lee Mean, okay? Lee Mean was 11 and 14 at the time. What's more appealing is that Machado's 26 and Lee Mean's 53 years old, okay? So he TKOs Lee Mean in the first round. And yet he and his team and his management and his coaching and the promotion see fit to run the bitch back. Why would you possibly run this thing back? But they do, and he fights Lee Mean a second time, and he arm bars him because it was, don't, don't hit Lee Mean, man. Come on, he's 54 years old now. So he just takes the first round armbar. That's been it. And then he fought Elson Lopez, an 11 and 7 Brazilian who they, they brought in specifically to lose, which he did in the first round. It was an 11 and 7 Brazilian journeyman. And then he's on the contender series. So, like, to me, it was justified. He was an underdog going on the contender series. He's not showing anything, it's just cherry picked opponents. And what does he do well? Is he a grappler? Is he a wrestler? Is he a striker? So, against. Kevin Safarski, he came out hot the first round and a half. I'll give him that. Like, he was throwing. He knew that he needed to win. He knew he probably needed to do something spectacular to get a contract because you're supposed to do something spectacular to get a contract on the Contender Series. So he went for it, but the first round and a half look a lot better than the last round and a half because he starts to tire and everything gets sloppy. It just becomes a low-level fight, and I do not expect him to get a contract out of it, but Dana pulls his classic, I need heavyweights, and he does, so they signed him. This guy's Jared Vandera, you know, and him would be an appropriate level of fight, you know, like that. That that's as far as I'm concerned where he's at. Now, he's only 29, which is super young for heavyweight, and he just landed like 121 significant strikes, so even though his cardio started to wean, he landed 40 in the, in the third round alone. He pushed the pace at the best that he could. This would be a sophomore outing for him. He always just ends it in the first round. I never seen him go to a third round. That was the first time he was able to at least, you know, go that hard three in a long time, show you something, all good stuff, 
Just I'm still not sold on him. Mick Parkin is the better kickboxer. He's got the better striking. He's got the better footwork. His wrestling seems a lot better. So I don't think Machado's just going to be able to lean on him. And I think it's Parkin that could be able to actually mix in a few takedowns if he wants to. So minus 330, you're never going to love it. And does that just automatically make it a dog or pass? No, because even though there's value there and there's 100% value there in Machado, it's like it's not the guy I think is most likely to win. I think Parkin's the more well-rounded guy. He's got some better skills everywhere. He actually looked good against Jamal Pogues, man. So to me, Jamal Pogues is equally, if not better than Kyle Machado. This one should go in his favor. All right, fair enough. Uh, moving on down, we got Lucas Al- Alexander taking on Jekka Sergi. Minus 500 for Alexander. Sergi can be had for plus 400. I mean, Jekka Sergi against Anshul Jubilee. Just an absolute clown show in that in that performance. Just like you know, putting his tongue out, getting taken down constantly, uh, looking like an incredibly one dimensional fighter. Minus five hundred, it seems a little bit wild. But Lucas Alexander put on a bit of a clinic, taking on Steve Peterson, and you know, you may want to knock Steve Steve Peterson, not being a, a tremendous uh, opponent or anything like that, but. Guy's been around the block. Like that win means a hell of a lot more to me than anything that uh, Jekka Saragi's done in his career. Maybe I just have sour grapes because I took Jekka Saragi against Anshul Jubilee, but um, I'm going to really struggle to, to get to this guy because he showed so, so many holes in his game in that matchup. So uh, Lucas Alexander absolutely rolls. Seems pretty clear to me. What about you? Yeah, puncher's chance, you know, of course, we talk about it all the time. It is a fist fight. But outside of that, I don't know where Jack Asaragi gets it done. I think of his, he's got 13 pro wins. I think he's got like nine or 10 of them are by knockout. Look at the majority of his recent wins. A lot of them are by knockout. You watch the tape on him. He's like a, like an Indonesian poor man's version of a Diaz, bro. Like he likes to stick his tongue out. He likes to play to his opponent. He likes to kind of get in their head mentally. And then he likes to try to box them up a little bit. On the road to the UFC, he competed twice. He beat that Pawan Mon Sai on a second, or sorry, third round spinning back fist. Then he knocked out Juan Bon Ki on a straight right uh, first round knockout. Like I don't know, a little less than three minutes into the first round. Has that power when he's fighting low level guys. You know, plays to the crowd, gets in your face, wants to make it a scrap. The UFC can match him with another banger that's going to stay in his face. A fun fight could be made out of it, but he clearly cannot wrestle. And Jubilee made him look very foolish. Four takedowns, easy money takedowns. You know, once he's on the ground, he's got nowhere to go. Ends up getting TKO'd, tired in that fight, super flat-footed, looked like a deer in the headlights. And I just think it's like another one of these guys that just shows you even in one UFC performance that he probably doesn't belong here. Lucas Alexander, you got to give him a little bit of credit. He debuted against Joannison Brito, which is just not an easy fight, man. And he got trucked. Ugh, he got trucked bad. But, you know, tough going. Coming back against Steven Peterson. Peterson's tough. You know, he's rugged. He's got a lot of experience. He came forward. And I thought um, you saw Lucas look a lot better, a lot more comfortable. He's got some big power. Lands, I think, 85 significant strikes. Scored a clean knockdown. Beat on him. And actually retired Steve Peterson after the fight. So, I could, I could see still young, you know, very physically in shape, very strong, dynamic guy. This is going to be a fun fight. But what you've got is you've got one guy who's a Brazilian powerhouse who had success on the Brazilian regional scene, who has fought uh, twice in the UFC at this point and has a win and has a fight against a top 10 contender, is still only 27 years old. All of this is good. Jericho's fighting. He is a Indonesian banger. Now, that's not a Brazilian banger. 
He's been competing on the Indonesian regional scene and the Southeast Asian regional scene. That's not Brazil. He has one fight in the UFC where he got clowned by Jubilee, of all people, in, uh, you know, in two rounds, giving up four easy takedowns, tiring out, gassing out. So there's I, I haven't seen any redeeming quality other than you might stick his tongue out, right? And you might, you might bait him in and you might cold cock him with something because it's a fight. But if that scenario plays out, I think it probably plays out for Lucas Alexander. I think that he's stronger. I think he's more dynamic. I think that he's going to be able to stay on his back foot and just get Jared Gui to come in. The other thing with Jared Gui is that he's massively flat-footed, right? And when you fight that style of trying to be so heavy on that lead leg and bait your opponent in, is you're there for the leg kicks. I think his foot gets chewed up. He eventually drops his hands, which are already low to begin with, and he just gets buzzsawed with something. If he makes it to the second round, he's going to tire. At some point, he'll get some either a caught kick or he'll stumble back or a positional arise, and I think Lucas Alexander, at that point, maybe chooses to grapple. But I think he could strike with him, he could grapple with him, he could get the job done however he wants. This is probably the end of the line for Jerry Gui, which is unfortunate, because he's actually super excited, mm-hmm. he's entertaining. But, like, watch him on Bellator a while, Bellator's not going to exist pretty soon. Watch him on LFA, you know, watch him on some regional show stuff, like, he's super entertaining, he's fun, I'd like to see him fight guys, I'd like to see him have some relevance, but he's going to have to build his way to the UFC properly, not win a quick little road to road to the octagon and then and then jump in here against a, a decent level of competition. So I don't think it's going to go well for him. But now you're in this one, this issue where it's like, do you want to bet minus 500 no, on the really. one and one wild? Me- no, yeah, not, not, not really. It's probably going to be a striking battle. They're probably going to bang it out. And that's the only path of victory for the other guys. So if you play into his hand, you're going to get burned from time to time. I got burned on Pat Sabatini because he decided to be an idiot. Don't be an idiot. Take the path of least resistance. It's how you're supposed to approach these things. So I'm going to take Lucas Alexander, but it, this card, the pricing has been steamed pretty good on a lot of these cards. And of course, we do it on a Wednesday afternoon. So by the time you even hear this show, you're not getting the most value, maybe. Um, this is a, this is an example. Lucas Alexander, there's not a ton of value there. No, there doesn't seem to be much meat on the bone there. Let's see if there's some on the next fight. we got Eileen Perez taking on Lucy, Lucy Pudilova. Minus 180 for Eileen Perez. Pudilova can be half plus 160 uh, on prize picks, promo code DOP. Um, they got Pudilova's takedowns at uh, 2.5. I mean, she had 10 last time out. <laughs> Obviously, her game plan in pretty much every single fight is go out there, steam takedowns. I know that, you know, Pudilova has put a lot of work into that style, side of her game. This fight's favored by minus 270 to go to or to go over two and a half rounds. Um, I feel like Eileen Perez over two and a half takedowns seems like a very good leg. I'll even throw it in right now since I'm talking about prize picks. Uh, Estevam, who's taking on Charles Johnson, has 2.5 as well. I'm taking both of those on prize picks. Uh, over two, 2.5 takedowns for Perez. Over 2.5 takedowns for Estevam. Um, both of their opponents. I f- or at least like the, the styles that I expect them to go out there and employ kind of lead me to believe that that's... A decent little play over on prize picks. Uh, but yeah, Eileen Perez, she comes out like she did. I mean, she changed her nickname. Does it all have to do with that, Cody? Changed the nickname from Fiona over to Nurmagomedov, and all of a sudden she's landing twelve or 10 takedowns in her next fight. Um, that's probably how she approaches this fight. 
Am I going to bet it? I don't know. It, 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 her by decision isn't very much better than like her money line straight up. Uh, Lucy Poods, incredibly low volume, particularly in her last time out there. I don't love this fight, but I think Eileen Perez wins a, a, a semi-convincing decision where she lays on top and, you know, it's kind of a, a snoozer. What about you? Yeah, I think this is this week's Lupita Godinez versus uh, Tabitha Ricci. Like, I, I think that there's a big size advantage for Eileen Perez. I think she's going to make very good use of it. I think she's going to win this fight. I think she'll probably win 30-27. Most of my friends and family will think that it's 30-27. Most of the people I ask about it will think it's 30-27. And the judges will render a split decision verdict because who the hell knows Paul Shaughnessy? But, yeah, I got to go with Eileen Perez. We always talk about experience. Like, ah, oh, this guy's coming off the Contender Series, and this guy's got one fight in the UFC, and he's taking on a 10-fight veteran, 15-fight veteran, twice as much pro experience, made the walk before, no UFC jitters. We, we spend a lot of time discussing about that, kind of like those those X factors, those little narratives. Lucy Putalova is someone who has the experience, and yet has never been able to really put it all together. She fought seven times in the UFC. Sorry, six times in the UFC, right? She had fought in legitimate contenders and gone the distance with them. She lost a split decision to Irene Aldana. She went the distance with current Bellator champion Liz Carmouche, fought Justine Keish, Antonina Shevchenko, gets released from the UFC. She is a 14-fight veteran who had one, two, three, four, five, six fights in the UFC, 14 fights overall, just released fresh from a released uh, in the UFC. And she fought that Teresa Bleda, who's now in the UFC. But she fought Teresa Bleda in an amateur fight after she got released from the UFC. Teresa Bleda was 18 years old. And Pudilova lost to her. So all the experience in the world can't stop the one thing. Pudilova just defensively can't grapple, bro. If you want to shoot takedowns on her, they're going to be there. They're going to be there. She's got some, like, I know what you're saying. There's not much volume because she's not committing to her punches, but she'll move a lot. There's a ton of movement. She's working. She's trying to land those small little shots. But the second you want to neutralize her, you shoot that takedown, she's going to get dragged down to the mat. And I think stronger, more physical fighters have generally done that to her. So since she's come back to the UFC, her first fight was at Wu Yanan, and she, she landed two takedowns of her own. She decided to mix it up a little bit. And then her last time out against Jocelyn Edwards, again, she landed the two takedowns. You can see she's actively working on her grappling. She's trying to now be the wrestler. But what she's trying to do is get going before you get going on her because that is the weakness. And I really look at a fight with Eileen Perez, who's coming into her own, that she's going to, the takedowns will be there. They'll be there. Her last time out, she lands 10 takedowns, 10 takedowns over Ashley Evans Smith. Ashley Evans Smith washed, but someone who had some college wrestling background, someone who had tons of experience. And yet Eileen Perez was a dog on a bone, man. 15 full minutes, 10 takedowns, pure control, tons of, you know, decent ground and pound, lots of work being done. Prior to that, the Stephanie Egger fight, you know, grappler versus grappler didn't favor her. But this is someone that when you watch her on the regional scene, she's physically strong, she's in your face, and she's going to be looking for those takedowns. Her only other loss, drum roll, please, disqualification. So, like, things can't happen. But that's because she's fighting aggressive and she's fighting for every inch. With Lucy Pudilova, if it was a striking battle, Pudilova's got the sharper technique. She probably could stay to the outside. She probably could land some low kicks, land a couple punches here and there. But Eileen Perez is not giving you space to operate with. I think she's going to be closing the distance, pressing forward. Scenario A, she gets the takedown. She's on top. We're going to win this fight. Scenario B, the takedowns aren't as easy as we think they might be. 
And then she's going to be able to just muscle her up against the cage. You look at the Tamir's Vidal fight on the regional scene, the disqualification loss. Mm-hmm. She's just out muscling her up against the cage all day. Vidal ain't no weak fighter. She's very good, especially in the clinch. So I think Perez has that grind factor to her. And that's something traditionally that Lucy Pudilova has always dealt with. Right. And even if Lucy Pudilova does go out there and does perform, which she did against Jocelyn Edwards. And most people agree she did beat Jocelyn Edwards. The judges still didn't give it to her. So, like, what more does she need to do? This is going to be a tough uphill battle for her in this spot. And the Wileen Perez uh, doesn't look like, you know, I can't even say a diamond in the rough. Like, I don't think she's a diamond by no means. But, like, somebody that maybe is not getting the, the shine that they deserve. Uh, I'm confident that she'll fight for my dollar. And I think that her style is going to lead to a, a good result. It's it's that ability to continuously grind, continuously pressure, continuously come forward, mix in those takedowns. Pudilova will tire, or she'll just be fighting off her back foot long enough that the judges will not be able to score the fight for her. So sign me up for Eileen Perez to make it a winning streak officially. Yep. Nicholas Mata takes on Trey Ogden. Mata is a minus 130 favorite. And uh, Ogden can be had for plus 110. Who you got here? Yeah, super interesting because when you look at this one, it's like Nicholas Mata, good chance here. Homie can't take a punch. It's unfortunate, but with some guys, they just they don't have the durability. He's got six pro losses. All six of his losses, have, sorry, five losses. All five of them have come inside the distance. But his last time out against Manuel Torres knocked out a minute 50 into the first round. Two fights back, or sorry, two losses back. His fight with Jim Miller, you cash nice on this one. He gets knocked out by Jim Miller two minutes into the second round, less than two minutes into the second round. His loss before that, Robert Hale back in 2018, first round knockout. And before that, Antonio Carlos Ribeiro, a minute eight, first round knockout, right? So his last four losses effectively been first round knockout losses. I'm sorry, I got the one second round in there against Jim Miller, but he can't take a punch. And he's boxing. That's kind of how he likes to fight. For a Brazilian guy, he's not necessarily looking to wrestle you to the ground and use this, this you know, strong BJJ background. He wants to box you up. He's got some decent boxing. He's a fun little fighter, but at some point, the fire comes back at him, and he just can't quite take it. What's nice about this fight is that Trey Ogden don't have knocked down anybody (laughs) yeah right zeros he's got no knockout victories to his credit his only really striking performance is that he edged out daniel zellhuber but the zellhuber fight like zellhuber is just a deer in the headlights and the moment got to him and ogden just spam kicks from the outside kind of just like edged him out but again it wasn't like he hurt him it wasn't like he striking had looked vastly improved it's just nothing happened and he slightly edged him out when you look at a lot of his fights the jordan levitt fight the ignacio bahamundes fight like he's getting doubled up on the strike count almost every time his opponents don't respect the fire coming back at him and he doesn't have the offensive wrestling to really mix them up i hear he's pretty decent on the ground you've seen some glimpses in the levitt fight he did okay on the ground but without the wrestling to get it to the ground, it's going to be a problem. Now, Ignacio Bahamandes is a big boy, but what we've seen with him is that he really can't wrestle. And like, and not even with him did he try to wrestle. He's just content with sitting on the outside and getting boxed up. So with Nicholas Mata, I think Nixon, he, he's a better striker. He's got the best, better combinations. He's got better hand speed. I think he's going to be able to just land a couple combinations, land that right hand, stick him with the jab, land those better shots and stay to the outside. If he's not getting rocked, and he's not getting wobbled, there's no reason to see the tide changing in any one way. And as far as Ogden shooting the takedown, maybe he goes with a low single. Maybe he tries to bowl him over. Maybe he tries to make something happen with him. It's not like Mata's big weaknesses is grappling. It's more so his ability to take punch. 
So even with a Trey Ogden takedown, I think Mana could work his way back up. I think Mana could just outstrike him, give up the takedown, still win the round. But what my heart's telling me is that he probably just sprawl and brawls him, you know, let Ogden shoot from the outside, let him get desperate, stuff those shots, play it smart. Because in the back of his mind, he's probably questioning his ability to take a punch. I don't expect him to be wild and reckless. But if you just want to play tit for tat, yeah, give me the faster, more refined, better striker. And whereas we can say, you know, chin issues all day, at the end of the day, Manuel Torres, that elbow... That elbow knocks out 80% of the population. Nasty. Jim yeah, Miller, guy's, you know, he's, he's dangerous. He's dangerous. Jim Miller is the most tenured guy in, in UFC lightweight history. He's been around. Robert Hale is a legitimate problem. You know, he's Georgian regional scene, but Daniel Levy's boy. Robert Hale is a, is a legitimate fighter. And then he loses to a 12 and two Brazilian guy back in the day, Antonio Carlos Ribeiro. Again, another guy that's not so bad. So those guys could crack. Those guys have that. That gift of the power. Those guys knock Mata out. I don't see Ogden doing it. So if he doesn't, then Mata gets this thing where he needs to get it. And hopefully gets the win. Again, uh, the odds, it's not like it's a crazy... Minus 130 plus uh, 110. Yeah, it's not like it's crazy by no means. But it's another one of these even money fights that'll get you some value considering the rest of the guys are big favorites. Yeah, Ogden can't bust a great. So I won't be fading Mata. Mata for me as well. Moving on down, we've got Rafael Estevam taking on Charles Johnson. Estevam, a minus 140 favorite. Johnson can be had for plus 120. I like the Estevam, as I mentioned earlier. The takedown's over two and a half. Johnson's tough, but it's like... And I, I suppose it was against like legitimate opponents in, in like Durden, who's on quite a... I don't know if I'd call it resurgence, but like he's kind of putting it all together at this stage in his career. 11 takedowns given up against Cody Durden. Muhammad Makayev obviously landed 12 takedowns against him. Everyone lands. O'Day Osborne, who isn't even a wrestler, uh, got three takedowns. So 2.5, over 2.5 for Estevam seems pretty much pretty, pretty reasonable. I liked this guy when he was... Coming off of contender series, you know, 48 significant strikes, two takedowns, um, and got the second round finish over Joao Elias. Um, and what, he had some sort of, what happened to him last time? We, we broke down his fight, but something happened at the weigh-ins or, or something like that leading up to his fight. Yeah, he missed, he missed, he missed weight. weight or he, didn't, he didn't get on, yeah, he didn't get on the scale, but he just, he got sick during the weight cut. So that is, that is problematic, obviously. Um, Johnson could ca- cause him some problems. Johnson's super, super long on the feet, but, and he, in fairness to him, he keeps getting back up, but I feel like the takedowns are going to be there for Estevam here. Um, I like it more as a prize picks play than as a bet, but Estevam will be the pick on the betting side for me as well. What about you? Yeah. So again, I'm actually very tempted in a Charles Johnson dog play. It's just, there's not enough meat on the bone. It would be another, I'm chasing an underdog and I'm getting plus 120 out of it, plus 130 out of it, not even plus 130 out of it. I just don't know if it's enough to cause me to take the pick. But yeah, I think this fight is very straightforward and easy to predict on paper. But when you peel the layers back, not so simple. On paper, yeah, dude, Johnson cannot wrestle defensively. He gets taken down multiple times by everybody. And Estevan looks like he's exactly that. I mean, he looked like a 
I mean, he's definitely a good wrestler. He's a very strong physical kid, Nova Yunyao on the contender series. It looked like he could not only wrestle, but he chain wrestles. And that's very problematic for Charles Johnson because Johnson generally stops the first one, sometimes the second one, and then the third one, he's always down. Chain wrestling is the problem. Now, he is getting up. He's getting up lots, but he gets up and it's just like a mat return back to the ground. Matt return back to the ground. Matt return back to the ground. Against Makayev, I'm going to give him a pass because the kids, you know, he's the Dagestani wrestler and he's on the way up and he's got the wrestling and you know you, you you want to give him a pass against some of these guys he's fought in the past Cody Durden you know Durden's proven he's a very physically strong guy and being able to get up that many times certainly means something it's the Oday Osborne fight that you mentioned like what the hell was that dude and I was on in that fight and it's like he would get back up which he's got an excellent get up game he would get back up he would walk forward that was the first time I seen Charles Johnson tired prior to that his cardio always checks out but he was tired in the Oday Osborne fight he's coming forward he would try to throw a one-two hands low boom Oday Osborne reactionary takedown all day easy money if that happens here I think Rafael Estevam's gonna just take him down he's gonna take him down he's gonna control him he's gonna roughhouse him and that's gonna be it for Charles Johnson the part that makes me feel Johnson live underdog is well, two reasons. First of all, Estevam's he's making his UFC debut, right? So that in itself is difficult. But he's also coming in on a, like a 13-month layoff. And he botched the weight cut the last time at this exact same weight class. So you've got a kid that is making a debut, which is tough. He's now coming off a 13-month layoff. He's got that ring rust. He has to make the cut down to 125. The last time he did, his body didn't react. Now, let's say he does make it. Did he make it well? Is he fighting at his best? Are the are the is the ring rust going to get to him? Are the bright lights going to get to him? None of that I like. The other thing with Charles Johnson, for as many defensive flaws as he has, you had better be ready to fight this man for fifteen minutes. Like he's not going anywhere. You can beat him, but you're not going to beat him down. He will be there at the end of the fifteen minutes all day. And with Estevam is that he's been smashing a lot of these guys, you know, second round finishes, a couple decision wins here and there. But for the most part, it's like, I, I think he has his way. There's not a ton of resistance. If Johnson can continuously make him work, maybe he can tire him out. If the kid has a bad weight cut, if the nerves get to him, if the layoff gets to him, if any of those elements gets to him and he slows down, Charles Johnson is going to box him up. Because as many we talk about this kid can wrestle and this kid can chain wrestle, he cannot strike. He's a bad strike. He needs to take Charles Johnson down or things are not going to go well for him. And in order to take Charles Johnson down, you got to be able to do it 10 times. you got to be able to do it for 15 minutes because he will get up. He will make you work. So you'd have to see him on the scales. Really is the bottom line is you have to see him on the scales. I prefer grapplers and wrestlers over strikers, especially if there's an obvious path here. And there is very much obvious path here there's a part of me deep down that's like it's not that straight it's not that straightforward it's not that simple charles johnson has an excellent get-up game at his best he probably has the cardio advantage and he certainly has a striking advantage so make him work and they're going to need the judges to favor striking over takedowns and control and lately they've been going striking over takedowns and control so if this fight's greasy you know maybe you want that plus money maybe you want that charles johnson I'm thinking fight goes the distance is probably the best way of attacking it, but, you know, I'm a sucker for punishment, so who knows? I want to wait till weigh-ins, but pre-fight flop, not enough meat on the bone to take the Johnson play. I, I take the obvious play and probably lose. The obvious play is the takedowns materialize, so. Actually, you know what? Let me not be a coward for once. I'm going to switch that. At least right now, I'm going to take Charles Johnson, underdog, Johnson, underdog, but I, I honestly am going to wait for the weigh-ins and make my real decision after that. All right, we got Mike uh, Mick Tybeck. Orobai taking on Uros Medic. 
So a fight that was added pretty late to the card. Uh, Orobai coming in on very, very short notice. They opened Medich as the favorite. And then a lot of money seemed to be coming in on Orobai here. So, I mean, it's this was added like pretty much like this morning type of thing. I haven't had time to look into this guy. I've looked through his topology. I mean, his only loss is against uh, some sort of, you know, super greasy, greasy Russian with like an undefeated record. So that kind of checks out. Is this guy the real deal? Have you have you looked into this fight at all? It's obviously, uh, you know, pretty, pretty fresh here. No, I honestly haven't looked at it. it I was under the impression that it was, uh, well, Topology had lifted as an unconfirmed rumor. I think it still is listed as an unconfirmed rumor, but I, I didn't really know. He's coming in short notice. The card had 13 fights on it. It's an Apex card. I didn't really think it was going to materialize, but I remember him from LFA. He's fought his last couple fights for LFA, and I think he's spending a lot of time in South Florida training. Uh, the guy's got some power, man. He can definitely go out there and wallop somebody. With Heroes Medic, he's very much the exact same thing. He comes from Alaska FC. He's raw. He, at the early portion of his career, is just a can crusher. He moves down to King's MMA in, in California. He starts training at better camps with better training partners and better coaches. And the, the kid can legitimately also wallop. Like, he can hit. So he's made a lot of improvements. He's a go-getter. He doesn't have the most refined technique. His hands are low. Defensively, he is there to get hit all day. But he's got a heart and a willingness and a desire to throw down. And this will be one of those fights where they're both throwing down. I feel like Ortolabe, from what I can remember, he's got the heavier firepower. And having the defensive lapses that Euros Medic does, I would think that if they're going to get into a barn burner of a fight, he's going to get crippled over at some point. But Medic is at the full camp. He's got the better cardio. He's competed at this level before. And if he could survive those early exchanges, maybe get this thing into the second round, he will come alive. So, uh, I don't know. Do I got to make a pick? What did you say the line was? Is there Minus a line 165 in? for Orobai. They opened Medici as the I, favorite. I, I would, I, I, and then Orobai. Oh, yeah. I'm, now I'm, now I'm on Twitter and I'm looking at like some I'm clips thinking... and stuff. This guy looks like he looks like a bad man. He looks like a bad man. I mean, I'm only looking he at clips. He's a bad man. He's yeah. a bad man. He he hits very, very hard. He comes forward. He swings down. He's he's from Kyrgyzstan, and they are rock solid. Mm-hmm. And but but again, he's coming in on very, very short notice. And yeah. with Euros Medic, Medic is getting his ass kicked by Matthew Semmelsberger, who's established in the division and has fought some good guys and had beat Jake Matthews and and he, he took that early beating and then he gave it right back to him and he tired him out. He won the second round. He won the third round. I actually knocked him out with a spinning back fix uh, in the in the third. So like Medic is low-key decent and Orlebi looks like he could be good. But again, it's a it's a short notice UFC debut. So yeah, I want to say dog or pass, but I like it would be it would be pretty irresponsible to sit here and make a pick and like I'm telling you, I haven't looked at him. I've seen his last couple of LFA fights just because I like to watch LFA, but yeah, I got to see how they really, how does the striking match up? Like who's, who's got the advantage on the inside? Who's got the better footwork? They both got power. One guy's got experience, you know, I don't think this thing's going to hit the ground. So it's They're going to bang it out. I'm tempted to take the plus money guy, to be honest, but Alaska FC has a tendency to show itself when uh, the going gets tough. So. I don't know. I don't really got a concrete answer for you. I guess Orla is the coward's way yet. I'll just take the favorite, but <clears throat> I'm actually, you know, tempted to look into it to see if, if Medic could be a decent dog run. I feel like Medic on his last time out against Semmelsberger, like, he looked pretty good in that spot. He did. He did. Like, it, it seems like things may be coming together for him. Like, 
He's been pretty solid for Alaska FC. He's one of the, uh, you know, he's one of the better guys. Maybe he's, he's no Cannoneer, I suppose. Cannoneer is the great, the goat to come from Alaska FC, I would imagine. But uh, Murphy. the only guarantee in no, no the only guarantee in oral by versus Medich is violence, my friend. Um, and there is no, uh, there are no props on the over under one and a half rounds yet. It's obviously far too early for that, but that fight should be really, really fun. It's probably not one I'm getting to from a betting perspective. Uh, I don't have a, I really don't know nearly enough about oral by to pick them. Um, I, honestly, I'm not even really going to pick anyone. Like I, at this point, I, I it'd be as you said, it's kind of reckless. Like I haven't looked far deep enough into this to like give any sort of advice on it. So finally, we got uh, Christian Leroy Duncan taking on uh, Dennis Tallulin. Uh, CLD is a minus three fifty five favorite. Tallulin could be after plus two ninety. Who you got? Back up the bags on Duncan, baby. 350, yeah, like what can you get out of that? But I think he wins. I think he wins big time. And so last week where I really screwed up is I should have put Emmers at the top. But I was like, ah, Emmers, he missed weight. That was like the deciding factor for not. And then he looked like a million dollars, Paul. And what was my worst case scenario that he lost? I could have rebuilt, you know, sucks, but whatever. Say la vie. They passed, and Emmers looked like a million bucks. Duncan is this week's Emmers. If he loses, you can still build some stuff back, which is not ideal, but you could. But I think he comes out here, and I think he looks like a million bucks. First and foremost, he has the full camp. He was supposed to fight in this fight against Cesar Almeida. Almeida just recently got a staph infection. Part of the reason I didn't really tape study that last fight, all the fight, was unconfirmed rumor. I thought they'd shift it over because I thought they would try to get Duncan the opponent, and and they, they do. They got somebody coming in, Dennis Tulin. Sure, good times. Now, Christian Duncan, right? This guy moves very, very well. He's got a traditional martial arts base. He's got excellent footwork, you know, similar to a, a Michael Venom Page, similar to a Raymond Daniels, same, similar to a, a Wonder Boy Thompson. Not saying he fights exactly like those guys, but he's very, very light on his feet and moves exceptionally well. If you want to come forward and try to bang with this guy, you're playing into his trap. That's him at his best. He's an excellent counterpuncher. How are you going to beat a guy that's that versatile? Well, of course, if you can wrestle him and you could take him to the ground, that would be one path. But beyond that, catching them is always a problem, right? The real way to slow down those athletic moving guys is the leg kick. And so I we I think I think you're on the same page, but we hit Armin Petrosian over him the last time out on the basis of the guy just kicks, kicks, kicks. He'll slow Duncan down. Once he slows Duncan down, Duncan's going to have to really show his true colors. And that's exactly what happened. He got his leg absolutely teed off on, but he showed his true colors. He's got some heart. He did not quit. His punches are good. It's that when you use that style, someone is going to come in here with a bad style clash and take advantage of you. And all those great guys we've talked about, they've all been slowed in the tracks by the leg kicks at one point or not themselves, right? The great Joseph Valtellini did to Raymond Daniels on Glory. And you'll go back to that fight on a lot of guys will use that fight to break down exactly how to slow these guys down. Petrosian can do that. He's an excellent light kicker. He's got excellent volume. He's a cast iron striker. He's in it to win it. And he's going to fight to the last minute. With Dennis Tulin, he's a little softer, man. Like he's a brawler. He's a bulldozer, but he's looking to come forward, land that one, two. That's it. Terrible footwork. Defensively, not very sound. Comes forward on straight patterns often on short notice. And he doesn't have the cardio. Like, even if he had early success, he's not continuing it for a second or third round. Him on a full camp 
is not going a hard second and third round. Him coming in on a week's notice is certainly not going to go in his favor. Mm -hmm. Now you look at him and it's like, oh man, he's got 11 pro wins. Paul, these are the pro wins, okay? 0-0, 0-0, record not available, 2-5, and 5-3, 0-0, 0-11, 0-0, 7-9. And then all of a sudden he's fighting top-level guys in the UFC and, and, and Brave. He, I think 10 of his wins are over the, the, the bottom of the barrel. The one win he has in the UFC, because he's 1-3 in the UFC, Jamie Pickett, who would be considered by most to be bottom of the barrel in terms of UFC competition. So Dennis is stuck in his ways, man. He's going to come forward. He's going to look to swing, and I just think it's going to play so heavily into Duncan's favor. He doesn't have the leg kicks to replicate that type of striking and slow him down, and instead he's just going to be coming in stiff and rigid, coming forward, getting countered for as long as he can before he folds over. His losses, Ikram Aliskarov, submission, give a pass there. Kurzaev, second-round submission, sure, you give him a pass there. Jung Young Park, first round submission. Eh. Gregory Rodriguez, a first round knockout his last time out. He can throw a little bit of heat. He can throw a little bit. The second that heat comes back on him, he just melts like chocolate, man. So Dennis is in for a rough one, man. He's going to be chasing Duncan around. He's going to be coming up short. He's going to start to eat some shots. He's going to start to get tired. Then he's going to get knocked out. So Duncan, Duncan's got to be the play this week. And again, is it like, oh man, minus 350, great price tag. It's like, you're never going to love those type of price tags. But comparatively to a lot of the other big favorites on the card, I think this is an excellent style clash for him because I don't see puncher's chance, puncher's chance. The guy can take a hell of a punch. So, you know, he's got cardio advantage, striking advantage, speed advantage. Probably You can't give him the experience advantage, but it's not far off. Like they nearly got the same amount of pro fights and, and Dennis has got wins over nobody. Like, ah, gotta be, gotta be Christian Leroy Duncan. No, am I too high up on him? I think it's like I'm very low on on Dennis Tulin. And I honestly think it, it, if they pulled out the Rolodex on, we need a guy to come in here on on short notice, on a week's notice, that would be a perfectly tailored matchup for Duncan and Duncan style. Then it's a non grappler with no footwork and suspect cardio that's going to come in and try to brawl. And that's exactly what they delivered. So this has got to be his uh, home run. He just needs to go and smack it out of the park. Yeah, Dennis kind of like seems like the type of guy that's like... He's been in a lot of like wars in the gym. I know he trains with, with Strickland. At least when he's in Vegas, he spends a lot of time training with him. And we know Strickland is like... noted for being an incredibly rough sparring partner. He kind of seems like damaged goods at this point. Like, yeah, he's very, very rudimentary, straightforward, throws bombs, but skill for skill, mobility, everything like that factored in. Like, I don't think this is a very competitive fight. And now we're kind of seeing, you know, Dennis get wobbled, rocked, and finished consistently. He's showing that he's not really UFC level. His grappling is is an absolute disaster. Um, doesn't have much submission defense whatsoever. None. So, uh, so yeah, I'm with you. Uh, Christian Lloyd Duncan probably just hangs out at range. But even if it if it got to the mat, like he's shown us in his fights that he's more than capable to handle somebody like Dennis who. Really doesn't have much down there whatsoever. So uh, I'm with you. It's CLD for me as well. 
We're just about out of time, bro. But before we go, hit him with the PRP. Yeah, PRP this week. Uh, we're going to go with Brandon Allen. We're going with Michael Morales. We're going with Peyton Talbot, Chase Hooper, uh, Amanda Hibas, uh, Eileen Perez, Joannison Brito is dog number one. Jose Johnson, uh, Michael Parkin, Lucas Alexander, Nicholas Moda is near even. Charles Johnson's dog number two. Euros Medic could be your dog number three, but like again, you really got to look at that one before you make a confident decision on it. And then plus Bellator this weekend, and plus, you know, everything else going on. I, I, I don't know. They got to squeeze it. But if you're sitting at home and you're like, dude, this guy's just taking the favorites all the time and parlaying them. Here's another dog for you, right? The Octagon, I think it's Octagon 49. So you're you're gonna have to be on a book that is a combat sport, not a combat sports book, but like that offers combat sports lines. But if you have Octagon MMA, uh, Octagon 49, sorry, um, a lot of the major books have it. And I'm not wasting your time. Octagon's the number one. It's one of Europe's top MMA promotions. They're bringing in a bunch of UFC veterans. They're bringing in some high-profile bouts. The production is really good on it. And then a lot of the books are jumping onto it. So the last two or three events, most books have been carrying Octagon uh, MMA. It's that when there's, LFA on and there's PFL on and there's UFC on you who's got time unless you're a European fight fan and this is your gym like who's really got time to add these extra things together unless you're you know a 20 year old kid out of college this is your everything you don't got shit going on in your life like it'd be really hard to tape it all so this one's just one of those ones like that would have probably normally fought through fall through the cracks but Steve McDonald's fighting on the card against this Joran Montanac right Steve McDonald's Canadian 29 years old used to live in BC now lives in uh Etobicoke trains at 10th planet Etobicoke the guy is an absolute beast he's an absolute ferocious monster of a man you meet him in person he's a block he is an absolute cinder block it, very like got this aura to him man like if you wanted somebody dead you, maybe steve might be the guy to go out there and take the job out for you he's four and oh it looked like sky was going to be the limit for him bjj black belt solid striking physically an absolute beast of a man bellator signs him four years ago as a 25 year old he goes to f- compete with bellator they do a pre-fight medical on him he's got a brain bleed so Bellator pulls his license and essentially every promoter in North America has been like, we can't let you compete with this brain bleed. So he's not, doesn't have a job. He's a full time at the gym doing two sessions a day. Beast of a man. He just hasn't competed in four years. He's not super old. He's still only 29. And then good thing for him, Germany don't give us shit. So like North America won't let him fight with this brain bleed, but like Germany, Germany does not care. So the reason why he's a plus 225 in some spots, some books got him as low as plus 180. I would think I got something to do with that because I've been hammering that line as much as I could. But yeah, he's taking on a French guy. He's four and two, no grappling. Both of his losses are first round knockout. I think on paper, it's like, oh, well, one guy's European and fights over there. Steve's got almost no footage available online. He hasn't fought in four years. On paper, he's fought in a low level of competition, and he's got a brain bleed, which is readily available information that anybody could find out about. So I think that's all enough for someone that's wiki-capping it, topology-capping it, just to be like, oh, this Canadian guy who hasn't fought in four years is just going to show up to get his ass kicked. That's fair. But again, if you know the story and you look back into it, it's like, Steve's a beast, man. A beast. And this John Moderak guy is going to get dumped on his head here pretty quick. So uh, I'm going to play some Steve McDonald. Again, I, I'm always down to play an underdog. It's just like, it's got to be right time, right place. And to me, this one feels like it. So, 
if you're on most a traditional book that's offering just UFC plays, you're out of luck. But if you get UFC and Bellator plays, yeah, that's good enough. But if again, if you're I, I specifically gravitate towards books that offer, you know, can I get Cage Warriors on it as well? Can I get LFA? Can I get Invicta? Can I get, you know, can I get some regional scenes that I might be interested in betting? Um if you're on one of those books, you most certainly have it because I know of at least four or five books that currently have the line out. Just see. See it if you can. I bet them. Plus 185. I mean, right now the market is pretty cornered at that. It's it's like four or five books that actually have it listed. The best is plus 187. The worst is plus 163. Um, yeah, I found it. it. I found it during your diatribe. Yeah. I found it. Um yeah, the best mark. I mean, at least on like fight odds dial IO, the best price that I see is is it was plus two hundred at at a book that doesn't pay me, so I'm not going to say their name. But uh, but yeah, I'm in plus one eighty five. Let's go, Steve. That Monarch guy, yeah, dude. Monarch's last fight, uh, he get got knocked out first round by an opponent who's thirteen and thirteen, and the dude took the fight on like four days' notice and knocked him out. And now he's a two to one favorite over Steve McDonald. <laughs> okay. Uh, Steve McDonald would probably be Canada's greatest light heavyweight. And that's not because he's so good that Canada has no light heavyweights, but I'm willing to ride it, dude. I'm willing to bet our best light heavyweight beats the 10th best light heavyweight from France. Sounds good to me, bro. All you had to say is underdog regional scene. And I was just like, I'm in. I'm in on that. I'm in Germany. Cody Let's wouldn't go. bring it up unless he really. Really, 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 really liked it. So, see where the number goes over the course of the rest of the week. There can't be too many people betting into those markets. You're right. They do get overlooked. But anyway, that is it for us this week. Hope you enjoyed the show. For producer Megan and Cody Saptic, I'm Paul Shaughnessy saying goodbye and good luck. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.